Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. Uh, One little bit of follow-up from our episode when I talked about my trip to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and visiting the Santa Fe Symposium, speaking there. We discussed a little bit about the speaker's trip and some of the fascinating things that we get to do on the speaker's trip. And something I didn't mention at the time because the uh, exhibit hadn't opened yet uh, is this uh, exhibit at the Albuquerque Museum of Art and History called American Jewelry from New Mexico. And this is an exhibit that opened June 2nd and runs until October 14th of this year. It is an exhibit that covers around 3,000 years of jewelry making in New Mexico. And we were fortunate because the exhibit was still being designed and laid out when we were there. Uh, Fortunately, Eddie Bell is friends with the curator of art at the Albuquerque Museum, uh, Andrew Connors. And uh, Rio Grande is also a sponsor of the exhibit. And so they invited us. Uh, invited the speakers to take a behind-the-scenes look at this collection. And it was a great a great chance to see these pieces up close. Uh, we, we weren't able to handle all the pieces, but they were just basically laid out on a table. And we were able to get up close to a lot of the pieces, and we were able to talk to the curator specifically about them. Uh, it was nice seeing old pieces in there. There are you know, pieces, as I said, that are around 3,000 years old, uh, some of which are made with pieces of precious materials like um, abalone, which are not native to the area of New Mexico. So these are obviously materials that people were getting and trading from, you know, somewhere on the Pacific. And as well as, you know, having the classic uh, turquoise that you can find in the area in New Mexico and and Arizona, Uh, obviously a lot of silver. You also get into sort of 18th, 19th century Mexican-inspired gold filigree work. And at various points through this history, you see the influences from either the natives that are living in the area and making this art, or the natives who are making art inspired by the other cultures that are coming through the the area. Uh, Because Albuquerque and the New Mexico area have been a waypoint for travelers from various parts of the world over thousands of years. The other nice thing is that unlike a lot of uh, exhibits that you tend to find in an area where that has such a strong culture, you know, like most people can think of the sort of the the stereotypical turquoise jewelry, silver and turquoise jewelry that you find in that part of the world. A lot of exhibits would just focus on that kind of work. Uh, But fortunately, Andrew's chosen to broaden that a little bit and talk about not just the, the natives of the area who are making work, but also modern contemporary artists. Um, And when I say modern, I'm even talking about to the early 20th century where you had uh, the locals making uh, pieces using uh, plastics, right? Plastics were starting to become available in the Depression. Precious materials like coral and and turquoise were no longer available or jet. So they were using plastics as a replacement, a colorful replacement. And then you start moving into the end of the 20th century And Albuquerque and the surrounding towns became a mecca for artists to collect. Uh, It's a beautiful weather all year round. And so these, you know, you go to somewhere like Taos where my friends uh, Phil and Peter are located and 
you have a huge artist community there. So just like other traditions and, and other cultures have moved in through the area as they've they've moved around, uh, you know, let's say across the the, the southern part of the U.S., uh, you have modern artists who are collecting there and people from various traditions. So you have Japanese Americans living there now. You have Africans who are moving and, um, you know, and, and settling in the area. And so you get these fabulous traditions coming from all over the world now and expanding what's happening in the area. This exhibit also includes a lot of great contemporary art and things that you wouldn't necessarily think of when you think about New Mexico or Albuquerque or or sort of that south area of the U.S. Uh, now, full disclosure, I, I am good friends with a number of the artists that are the contemporary artists that are in this uh, this exhibit. But there's some great pieces in there. It's a, a very very well laid out and very well curated, and it's an interesting look at how much of a mecca New Mexico has been for thousands of years for uh, a really really interesting jewelry tradition. So if you happen to be in the area, if you happen to be in in Albuquerque for any reason between now and October 14th, 2018, I do recommend going and visiting it. It's a, a great collection. Actually, the whole museum is fabulous. We we did a tour of some of the some of their other galleries as well with one of the uh, the assistant curators. It's a great little museum. Certainly a, a gem that you wouldn't necessarily think about finding in a city the size of Albuquerque. It's certainly worth the visit and uh, I, I had a great time looking at it. I thank Andrew for for showing us through the exhibit and uh, and giving us a such a hands on view of of what's going on and behind the scenes view of the museum. That was uh, a great great opportunity that uh, don't we don't normally get to see. It's uh, it's museums are sort of black boxes, and so it was uh, it was nice to get to see what's going on in the background. I always enjoy getting a behind the scenes look at a. A museum's collection. And were there any pieces there that employed uh, any sort of fossils or, or dinosaur bone, given the the area? Hmm. I, I, off the top of my head, I can't think of anything that did. Uh, but there were obviously a lot of found objects, a lot of um, materials that were precious to the area, and hmm. uh, yeah, some some great stuff. And everything, even in the contemporary stuff, there's everything from pieces being made with truly modern machines, you know, laser cutters and uh, CNC equipment, uh, hydraulic presses, and also contemporary stuff being made entirely by hand with very primitive tools. So there's some there's some fabulous work in there. Uh, there's a we'll put a link to the, the exhibition website. There's a good interview with Andrew in there. It's about 12 and a half minutes long. And a lot of the pieces, a lot of the, the finest pieces that are in the, the exhibit uh, sort of show up on screen, and Andrew talks a little bit about each of them, or not about the pieces specifically, but about sort of the tradition and what's going on with it, and why they've chosen some of these pieces, and and how how they're important to the story. Uh, so I, I recommend that you go and check it out. It's even if you if you can't if you're not going to have an opportunity to go and see it, it's it's worth watching the video. And if you are, it's a it's a little bit of a teaser to uh, to convince you to go and visit. Another piece of follow up from episode four. Is the, the sad news that the Oklahoma State University watchmaking program is going to be winding down in the not too distant future? Hmm. Now the the exact reasons haven't fully been disclosed, and often they aren't ever fully disclosed. 
because this actually is, is coming on the heels of a, another of the United States' larger watchmaking schools closing as the, the watchmaking school in St. Paul, Minnesota, also shut down uh, just a few years ago. And uh, both these programs were, were part of the WOSTEP program, which is the Watchmakers of Switzerland Training and Education Program. And part of the reason that St. Paul ended up needing to close is that they weren't willing to expand their program to include the necessary requirements for SATA, which was the, the Swiss American Watchmakers Training Alliance, and that resulted in some of their funding being pulled. Uh, but the this program at OSU was part of SATA and uh, did continue to receive funding through that alliance. Uh, but it sounds like more so that funding is being pulled at a state level. And it's not just the watchmaking program that's shutting down, but several other programs at the, the school as well. Um, but it's hard to say exactly what is the reason, because they did have decent enrollment. They've also had a number of accomplished professors at the school over the years as mm. well, including uh, Vitya Rahovsky, who uh, designed and, and prototyped and actually had some patents on a an electromechanical watch, we'll say, that uh, was very akin to what Seiko ultimately released in the spring drive. Albeit, Seiko certainly has its fair share of patents and, and research and development that went into to being able to, to launch that piece. And the Swatch Group's ETA subsidiary also has a, a number of patents in the area, but it's uh, quite impressive that a, a single watchmaker uh, was was able to also create a, a very similar piece. And this was a, a number of years ago that he was granted the, the patent on that. And if I recall correctly, his patent had actually expired just shortly before Seiko hmm. announced the, the spring draft. I wonder if as well, obviously funding funding at the from governments is a big problem when it comes to any kind of school like this because they, they do rely on that. But I wonder if the locations of some of these schools is also a bit of an issue because I'm not sure how many people are interested in moving into the the depths of the Midwest or to go to a, to go to a watchmaking school. I wonder if uh, because that, I, I have to imagine that that's not very close to some of the brand centers that they'll eventually be looking to go to work in. Uh, I wonder how much that's limiting their uh, their enrollment. Well, it's at least it's in Oklahoma. You look at something like. Lidditz, which is actually one of the, the premier schools for horology in the United States. That, that is in the middle of, of nowhere. <laughs> uh, good old Amish country. But at, at least it is uh, ancillary to an actual service center there as well that's run by Rolex. Now, it's it's interesting you mentioned that, though, because uh, this pattern almost almost seems deja vu uh, of what happened here in, in Canada back in the, the 90s when the government started pulling funding. So we had right. schools in Toronto, Montreal, Trois-Rivières, and Quebec City. As they, they slowly each wound down with the, the triad in Montreal, Trois-Rivières, and, and Quebec City, they decided to fold all three schools into to Trois-Rivières because it's halfway between Montreal and, sure. and Quebec City. But uh, that it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. So, so rather than having things centered in a, a metropolis, uh, they... He just decided to to compromise, and, and often a, a compromise isn't the the best 
or more most optimal solution. I was going to say it's it's halfway in between two places and in the middle of nowhere because it's I had I had actually considered it. We you and I had talked a while before we started the podcast years ago, but the fact that you had gone there and I I had sort of entertained the idea of uh, of going to it, but I I just can't do I can't do Trois Rivières. If it had been Montreal, I probably would have given it some serious thought and actually tried it. But Trois-Rivières is just, it's hours from anywhere. And I, I'm not sure that I could have done it for two years. Yeah, it's a design by committee type of decision. <laughs> well, hopefully people figure it out because there is still obviously a need for it. And, uh, you know, there's the, obviously the big universities are never going to, at least in Canada, the big universities are unlikely to ever pick up a, a school like that and even a lot of our trade schools don't seem to be interested in in that kind of thing so hopefully uh, hopefully people can figure it out and figure out a way of funding it because there's obviously a need for watchmakers mm-hmm. yeah and the, the school in Trollivier has actually been on the the brink of closure on several occasions in the, the last two decades but uh, mm. it seems to to rise like a phoenix each time well, that's how I first heard about it was through a uh, an, a newspaper article talking about it closing or or being ready to close. So yeah, it's I, I'm I'm still amazed every year when I found out that it's still it's still going because I I can't imagine it's easy to attract people to Trois Rivières. Mm-hmm. Well, at least the the cost of living's cheap. It's the, <laughs> the least I've ever paid in rent. Now, both of us have discussed in the past about listening to music while we're working and and the importance of that. And I I understand that you've updated your gear list a little bit for how you listen to audio in the shop. But uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about your your new wireless earbuds? Yes, not so much for music. I wouldn't really recommend them for music because AirPods would would certainly still have a a leg up on on these guys. But I mentioned back in our... uh, our, our tools episode or things we find handy around the shop that uh, got a handful of these S530 wireless earbuds that I use. And I just pop them in and usually get about four hours out of them. And I generally use them for just podcast and, and audiobook consumption. But I, I, one thing I dislike about them is the the double tap on the or double press rather on the button will dial the last number that you called. <laughs> which is totally That's awkward. useless i don't need that feature at all and you, you don't I call actually, a lot of people back I, I hardly ever what's a phone like <laughs> it's a thing for playing music on can't remember the, the internet. last time i dialed a phone number um but every so often uh, let's say i'm i don't have an extra hand free i don't want to pull my phone out of my pocket i want to skip a song so i I've often wished that that double press hmm. gesture would just skip forward a little bit or, or skip to the next track. And uh, the the other nice thing about the the S five thirties is you know you can get them from anywhere from about three dollars to ten dollars shipping included delivered to to your door. Uh, so if if you happen to lose one or it breaks or whatever, it doesn't matter. And I haven't happened to have lost one yet, but it's nice not to have to worry about that. Sure, you're not you're not replacing hundred dollar headphones if you if you lose one. Yeah, I mean you lose an an earpod and you're you're out what seventy nine dollars the, the yeah. U S replacement value. I don't know how much I it think is here something in Canada. Like that, yeah. 
or in my case, destroying something in the shop because I've I've destroyed more than a few things in the shop. Although now with wireless headphones, it's less likely that I I destroy them. I've, but I've caught a couple of cables and you know saws and things like that over the years, and that's a, that's a quick way to destroy a, a set of headphones. So I just had my my eye out for anything similar to the S five thirty that you know it's inexpensive but would have that skip feature built in, and uh, I've came across uh, just a, a fairly generic set of earbuds recently, the X1Ts. Uh, they're just a little less than $20, including the, the shipping for a pair of them. So basically the same as the S530s at the, the top end of the price matrix there. It's like 10 bucks an earbud. So if I, if I lose it, it falls down a drain pipe, into a toilet, what have you, it doesn't really matter. The nice thing about these is that, that it does have that, that skip feature built into it, and I don't have to wor- accidentally worry about pocket dialing someone if I, I throw it into my pocket. Uh, and the other upside with them too is that you can pair them in stereo. So the S530s, you, you can't pair in stereo. I was going to say that was one of the limitations of the the other ones that turned me off of it because I understand that not everything, that you're, if you're listening to just spoken word, it's stereo isn't necessarily important, but I, I find it significantly easier to listen to things if uh, if I'm getting it in stereo. Hmm. I often like to have a an ear out for what's what's going on around me still. So I, even though these do pair in stereo, I've used it very rarely in stereo. Generally, just one ear. Uh, the other nice thing too is that uh, it's I don't know what the the Latin word is for ear, but short of having proper terminology here, they're they're ambidextrous. I can throw it in either ear. Um, it, it, it doesn't matter. Whereas with the S five thirty, you actually have to buy a, a left or a right depending on what you want. So so that's nice too, because sometimes I want to have a listening out one or the other and I can flip back and forth. Uh, how how do they do in terms of uh, passive noise cancelling? That's that's one of my big complaints about the Apple AirPods. I like them. They're they're a great device. They they work so well um for you know pairing and everything like that. But one of my complaints about them is that they don't really passively block noise. Do these do these have any sort of passive noise cancelling on them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, these guys do. So again, unlike the S530s, these have passive noise cancellation. And you've got the, the different interchangeable tips on them uh, that you can, can get to, to fit your ear properly. I would say it's similar to the Beats X. So we've got a, a sure. pair of those kicking around the house. And I prefer those over the the AirPods for both battery life and um, the fact that you do get that that passive noise cancellation, right? And you also get all the benefits that you, you get with the well, I shouldn't say all the benefits. You get the majority of the benefits that you get from the AirPods as well in in terms of the the fact that you can just easily switch between devices because it's got the same W one chip in it. The the AirPods first introduced, so it all, all syncs using your iCloud account. And I think they'll come in most handy in, in the winter when I. I'm on a bus or something, and it's standing room only, and you're all bundled up. You just reach up and, and quickly skip rather than trying to fish a phone out. Or, uh, Of course, you can use a watch, too, if you happen to be sporting something like a, an Apple Watch or a, a Garmin Phoenix. But even that, if it's bundled under a, a thick jacket and mittens, it's far easier just to reach up and, and tap on the earbud. Which is the nice thing about the, the S530s that I appreciated, too, is I can control everything from the pairing and, and playback through, right through a tube and not have to worry about any sort of capacitive interface at all. 
Yeah, I've never noticed the problem of the AirPods not really having any controls on them. I, I've got the double tap configured to stop, uh, start and stop playback on mine. Uh, hmm. I think by default it activates Siri if you double tap on yeah. them, but I've, I've reconfigured mine to be start and stop because if I'm going to, I can just call out, hey, Siri, and she does things for me. I don't need to, to initiate it on the uh, the AirPods. So the, the start and stop is nice to have. Uh, and then I, I've got my Apple Watch on me most of the time, and it's pretty rare that it isn't um, that it isn't accessible at least to some degree. So skipping and volume control are easily uh, accessed on the the watch face instead. So I, I can I've spoken to a few people who who have problems with the AirPods and and the fact that they don't have any sort of real controls on them. Uh, volume control is one of the big ones. A lot of people wish that it had uh, some kind of volume control. The you know again with an Apple Watch, it, that becomes less of an issue and it's it's not so bad. Uh, the other thing that I found is that I, I often have my phone in my back pocket and I can just reach through the the pocket of my jeans and be able to turn the volume up and down if I can't get easy access to to my watch. So I don't need to necessarily pull out my phone. I can just sort of adjust the the volume that way. Yeah, I, I do likewise except through my my front pocket just to. Toggle the volume up or down right through the pocket. That's the nice thing about still having tactile volume buttons on the iPhone. <laughs> for now. <laughs> I'm sure that that's going to change for at now, some point. Yeah. Well, apparently the next version of the Apple Watch is going to be doing away with actual physical clicky buttons for both the lower button and the, the fact that you can currently depress the crown. Hmm, that'll be interesting. I actually like the the tactile nature of that crown. And in fact, that's one of the, one of the most satisfying parts of the Apple watch experience is that, uh, the feel of that crown, they've got the tension absolutely perfect on it. It's a really pleasant experience to be able to browse the interface and also, uh, select things and whatnot using that, uh, that crown. Looking forward to being able to play background audio on your Apple watch come the fall. Yeah, we'll have to see. I'm I, I skipped the third generation Apple Watch and and didn't uh, didn't go for the LTE version uh, that upgrade. It wasn't uh, by itself. It wasn't compelling enough for me to uh, to get it. Uh, but I suspect I'm going to get the fourth gen watch. It'll be enough of a a jump in performance alone to to consider it. So I'll be curious to see what what also comes in the uh, comes along with it. Now I think you're talking primarily about some of the features in WatchOS five, which mm-hmm. are going to allow uh, applications like Overcast, we've talked about before. That's uh, one of our favorite podcasting apps. We've talked about the fact, well, I guess we haven't talked about it, but if you listen to Marco Arment, the author of Overcast, he's talked about it a few times on his podcast, the Accidental Tech Podcast. And one of the reasons why the why Overcast doesn't have a full-featured podcast player right now is because there isn't the ability to do background audio playing on the watch right now. We'll see what WatchOS five comes out with and and how that affects the you know these sort of audio apps and podcast players and things like that. And then with the newer watches with the higher performance, the ability to stream audio over LTE and things like that, I think it's going to be a compelling upgrade. And uh, the the combination of all those things together, uh, I suspect they're they're probably going to work well into uh, you know to making something that's a sort of a good utility watch. It's a it's a good sort of everyday everyday carry kind of watch in terms of, uh, at least for me, in terms of, of doing a lot of things that I want to do on a on a normal basis. Another noteworthy thing about watchOS 5 is that it's uh, officially making the first generation Apple Watch that you purchased obsolete. 
So just a, a little yeah. over three years after it was first actually publicly available for purchase, it is uh, no longer supported by Apple. Yeah, and that's fine. Uh, they did the same thing with the iPad. Uh, the first-gen iPad ended up, uh, they dropped support for it pretty quickly. And I'm I'm totally okay with that. It's, uh, you know, the it was a great device to bring out, and it was certainly, I think it was a, a solid 1.0 product. Uh, in terms of what it could do, especially once the uh, watchOS 2 came out, some of the changes they made to the interface in watchOS 2 were were worthwhile uh, once they saw how people were actually using the product. But I think from a performance point of view and and the hardware and everything like that, I, I think the first gen watch was was okay. Obviously, compared to the current ones, it's it's pretty slow and uh, and it's la- lacking features like uh, waterproofing that I take advantage of now with my second gen watch when I'm swimming, uh, and then the LTE and stuff like that. But you know, it, it had pretty reasonable battery life. I could easily get through a ba- you know through a day with a single battery charge and still have plenty left over. The size hasn't changed dramatically, uh, so it still looks like a modern Apple Watch. If you don't know the little cues to um, you know to tell the difference with it, it still looks pretty pretty new. So, anyway, I'm 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 totally okay with the first gen being dropped from the supported list. It it means that developers are going to be able to move forward and and put in features that wouldn't normally be able to put in because they'd have to continue supporting that uh, first gen watch. So yeah, I, I'm looking forward to that. And I'm looking forward to seeing what else is, uh, what else they announced with watch OS five when they announced the new watch later this year that I presume they're going to, obviously we don't know for sure, but I assume there's going to be a, an October event that they'll probably announce new watches at. And I suppose if you had enough folly and liquidity to drop 10 K plus on a <laughs> a gold Apple Watch edition that uh, you're probably not too heartbroken that it's it's now obsolete. No, I don't think I, I don't think the people who are wearing those are probably wearing them on a regular basis today. It was a it was a fashion statement at the time, and frankly, the the ceramic ones they've got out now actually look pretty good. I had considered getting one of the black ceramic ones last year before I decided to to skip the third generation, but yeah, the the ceramic ones look pretty slick. So I don't know. I think that uh, and they're significantly less expensive than that uh, 18 karat gold one. You, you never actually own an Apple Watch. You merely take <laughs> care of it until they release the next generation. Yeah. Now, as this episode goes live, the HomePod is officially finally available in Canada. You you planning to pick up a HomePod? Yeah, it's it's nice to see that us uh, a second tier countries are finally getting access to uh, to Apple's hardware. Normally, we are we're on that that first tier release list, so it was a little bit uh, disappointing to see that the HomePod didn't get to us. Not sure how Australia beat us out this time, but uh, and it, it's an intriguing device for me. It, it's funny because over the years we've had large TVs with surround sound, home entertainment systems hooked up to them and whatnot. And in the last couple of years, we've actually been going backwards in that. So our, our TV died a few years ago, and we've never replaced it, and that's meant that the home entertainment system has has sort of been sitting there languishing and not really being used. And uh, we've been looking for some sort of an interesting replacement for that. And uh, I suspect that the HomePod may have a spot in the house for that, just because it is a, a decent quality speaker and it integrates so well with so many of the Apple services that are out there. You know, Siri, I'm not so concerned about in terms of, you know, how well it integrates. I know a lot of people like their, uh, what is it, their ladies in a tube that, uh, is that how people are referring to them, the uh, the various home automation devices that people are using from Amazon and Google and things like that. That intrigues me a lot less than I think some people. 
but certainly from a music point of view and a, and a podcast point of view, being able to easily tell my phone to start playing, you know, the latest episode of a podcast or an audiobook or something like that through the HomePod, that that's certainly intriguing to me. Yeah, I like the idea of them. So I'm, I haven't actually heard one in person yet. Uh, I've, you know, I know a number of people, a number of audiophiles who've re- reviewed them over the years and over the, I guess, the last six months or so, seven months that they've been available. And everybody's had very good things to say about them. They're, you know, they're a good quality speaker for the price. But uh, we'll see. I, I, I suspect it's going to be on my shopping list. So we'll, we'll see when it, uh, when it comes into the house. So you mentioned you not not so keen on on Siri and is that because uh you've been perpetually disappointed by the the Siri of your or are you excited in any way by the the Siri shortcuts features that were announced it's funny because i unlike unlike a lot of people i'm not disappointed in Siri in terms of uh her ability to actually do things um i th- i've been playing with voice control and computers since the late 90s uh, i did work for IBM for a stint and they had a division that worked on voice dictation. And having having played with voice dictation on a 486, you know, 20 years ago, anything that Siri does right now is like black magic compared to that stuff. So I've been a little bit less uh, critical of what Siri can and can't do over the last couple of years. I, I, and for a lot of the things that I need it for, it it works fine when I need to find an address or if I wanted to play, um, you know, a playlist or something like that, it, it's, you know, that works okay. Uh, I use it on a regular basis when I'm in the car for dictating messages. And, and so all those things are, are fine. Uh, but I found that the, a lot of the, a lot of her ability to do things are, is sort of really limited um, in terms of what other things it can access. And so the, the series shortcuts that you're alluding to was announced this year at uh, uh, Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference. And it's a new feature that's going to be in iOS 12 this fall. And I am absolutely intrigued by this. Uh, I, I have played around with Workflow, which is an app that Apple bought last year. And they've started rolling into, obviously, this is one of the projects they've started rolling it into. And the ability to kick off uh, a series of custom scripts effectively through voice commands is definitely intriguing for me. I'm I am absolutely curious to play with this how about you this isn't your applications aren't something that uh that really lend themselves to uh to tying into siri i don't think or or do you have any sort of any interest in in trying to use this feature in your own apps uh, not particularly uh there was uh, an app i'd considered writing for the amazon echo using the alexa skills kit which is uh, ask is the the acronym but it was just uh, more trouble than it was worth spinning up the the web service to to pull that off. So I I might take another stab at that with the Siri shortcuts. Just running it natively on the device will will be quite nice. Uh, but I'm certainly looking forward to being able to to chain commands together and set up custom phrases to to kick workflows off using Siri shortcuts. I think one of the things that intrigues me the most is being able to say things like, you know, oh, I'm heading home and that, you know, that will, that phrase will end up being something that triggers off, let's say, turning the heat up at home and, you know, turning the lights on outside and things like that. You know, those those are the, those are the sorts of things I think would be intriguing, you know, and also maybe being able to message people if you're, if you're headed somewhere, things like that. 
like those those sorts of things i find um i find intriguing and i think there's some possibilities there for uh you know for workflows that are are going to be are going to be quite complicated and powerful but it looks like it's going to be easy enough uh from the the few things that i've seen from the the betas people are playing with it looks like it's going to be easy enough to do that if you just want to do something very simple it, you can do something very simple and very easy with it so yeah i think this uh it may take a year or so for this to really take off because uh, some of it will require uh, developers to integrate skills into Siri. Um, although, from what I understand, it's not particularly complicated to do. So hopefully it happens fast and, and hopefully we see people doing interesting things with it and it starts to take off. Yeah, any apps that use any sort of continuity at, at all at the moment, it's very easy to opt into a number of the the features that this opens up and really that this is almost like a, a, a gateway drug for, for programming as it really opens up some, some programmatic concepts to, to the masses and it makes it very easy and very accessible. And the way they've set it up on iOS 12, it's almost encouraging you to set up these sequences or, or workflows of events, these, these, change shortcuts that you can trigger with a, a single catchphrase it's uh it's really quite powerful now the actual shortcuts app itself isn't in the the beta that's currently shipping uh, but it will be will be on a forthcoming beta but if you happen to have the the workflow app already installed you, you can get a, a taste of what's to come and uh it, it's neat I'm, I'm excited for it and actually what what i find somewhat interesting or, or surprising uh, was not expecting uh, at all to come out of this WWDC for me, as uh, I had no particular inkling to to get a a HomePod, mm-hmm. and I would say I, I still don't. And, and interestingly, uh, what Siri shortcuts has done for me is uh, sort of ob- obliterated any inkling of a desire to even get a HomePod, because now I can take. Uh, well, I happen to have uh, an iPhone 5S kicking around. iOS 12 brings a whole bunch of speed enhancements and improvements and still supports the 5S. And that means that I'll be able to run Siri shortcuts on a 5S. So my, my game plan is to to take that 5S, plug it into the wall, use that 3.5 millimeter audio jack that it, it, it still has, unlike more, more modern iPhones, and I'll just pipe it through a speaker. Uh, that's higher quality than the actual phone speaker, and I, I will essentially have yeah, poor man's uh, HomePod. Basically, we've we've got a you know we've got a slightly older iPad that's sitting around that um, is really being used for TV and occasional Siri control. You know, the, I, with this with the Siri shortcuts, I'm sure that I could do a lot of that off of the iPad. You know, it would still manage to to pull it off. Uh, but I, I don't know. I like the idea of the of the HomePod. I like the idea of having a good quality speaker that we. You know, again, we've sort of taken out all of the speakers in the house, and uh, and that's a bit frustrating sometimes. I, you know, there's times when I I just want to be able to. Uh, I'm not walking around with headphones on, and I would just be like be able to tell Siri to play some music or whatever, and and have it come out. Especially you know parties and things like that. It'd be nice. And I've played a little bit around with the multi-room audio that uh, that's been supported from the Mac in the past. Uh, so again, if you've got parties and stuff like that, I've had. Uh, some of the little airport express units that uh, the the little extender stations 
it had a three and a half millimeter jack in it. So you could plug in speakers to a couple of these, these little base stations. And th- if you were playing music through iTunes on the Mac, you could play the same music to multiple speakers simultaneously. Uh, so that was sort of a, a precursor to what's being supported now in AirPlay 2. And that's a nice feature to be able to have. It, it's it's uh, great to be able to say, you know, play music to the kitchen and the living room and have the same music coming out of both of them uh, in sync. Or, you know, if, in my case, I had uh, speakers in the shop that I would drag out into the backyard when, when we were having barbecues. So I could have the, the speakers in the in the house and the ones that were in the shop uh, sort of playing the same music together and, and having that ability to do that is, is kind of nice. So yeah, we'll have to see. I've also got a, now that I don't have a TV sitting around, I've got an old Apple TV not doing anything. So I may use that as a, you know, similar to your, your iPhone 5S and plug that into an old set of speakers or something and, and put it in a different part of the, the house. Maybe I'll put that in the studio and uh, again, be able to get sort of multi-room audio if I want. Hmm. Yeah, I also have a, several of the Airport Express base stations there. And, uh, yeah, really great for being able to just stream audio all throughout the house. Yeah. But again, the nice thing about this is that it's a good high-quality speaker in a nice little package. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have to have a receiver sitting there. I don't have to have other speakers sitting there. So uh, I don't know. Well, it's a compelling a compelling product for me. We'll see. Uh, it's it's not the cheapest speaker on the, on the market, but it also sounds pretty good. So I, I suspect that one will one will arrive at some point. Keep your cats away from the cord. <laughs> Gilmore loves chewing on apple cords. They are the best chewy rubber on the planet. And she lives for chewing on those nice rubbery apple cords. Yeah, I, I have a number of them that are all chewed up. So, so you might want to cover this one in nail polish or, or something. <laughs> yeah. Because it unfortunately is not replaceable if uh, anything goes around oh, really? there. Yep. Oh, well, that's good to know. It's uh, integrated right into the, the HomePod. Well, interesting. All right. Then uh, I will definitely have to make a Gilmore proof. <laughs> so anything else to get for you from DubDub this year? You know, it's, it's funny. I'm trying to think about what was going on. It's weird because in past years, we've seen hardware come out at uh, this event, and there was no hardware that came out at all. Uh, so that was a bit of an odd, um, an odd thing this year. I am, even though I find them absolutely ridiculous, the... Uh, AR stuff that they're doing with the they've they've expanded the Animoji into Memoji now, so you can do these these custom mm-hmm. faces that follow what you're you know follow facial movements and and things like that. Um, I, I don't really use them. I think I've sent one one Animoji of me. Uh, I think it was a pile of poo making fun of uh, of Rich, and I think you sent me one that uh, that was making fun of the fact that you got your iPhone 10 a week before me. But other than that, I uh, I haven't really used them, but I, I'm curious to see how that technology gets used by other developers because that there is a, a you know obviously a, a knock-on effect to that new technology, the new AR technology uh, that's coming out, and how people can take advantage of it. So I, I'm the, this has really stepped up how advanced it is, how like the the physics of these little emojis the like the hair physics for instance is quite impressive uh, they have tongue detection now which is you know if you stick out your tongue you can you can get your emoji to stick out its tongue um so anyways it's it's a bit of a goofy feature but it the technology that's underlying that feature is important 
And I, I don't think it's going to be, I don't think it's going to be really groundbreaking for a couple of years, but I think these first early steps are important to getting people used to the idea, not just of using it, but also developing for it. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point Apple is, does some sort of a like wearables, like a glasses that have mm -hmm. the ability to overlay artificial reality from your phone onto what you're seeing in the world. And I think that there's some there's some compelling use for that. I think the way that Google did it was a little creepy. And I don't think it was necessarily what, what we want to see in, in how to implement that kind of wearable uh, technology. But I think there, I, th I still think there's a compelling use for AR in wearable technology. And I think that uh, that this is sort of the the leading edge of that. I think this is where we're starting to see people getting the ideas that they're going to develop into that, um, you know, into that product maybe five or 10 years from now. Yeah, I can certainly see it becoming far more useful once you've, you've got it integrated into a, a heads-up mm -hmm. display or a pair of glasses. Um, the, the most useful um, application for it that has been proven thus far is actually Sherlocked uh, <laughs> this year at WWC with the, right. the Measures app. And, and Sherlocking, for, for anyone who might not be familiar, is uh, in reference to a, a utility that existed on a, an ancient version of the Mac uh, that was made by a third party called Watson. And then uh, Apple released a, a very similar application that they named Sherlock. Um, once they, they realized uh, how useful this utility was. Uh, so the, the term Sherlocking has, has come to mean basically any any app that was made by a third party that's uh, that becomes a, a first party app that's made by Apple. So they, they released a, an app for the iPhone and, and iPad that basically acts as a, a measuring tape or measuring device using augmented reality. Yeah, there's certainly some compelling uses for that. I've seen a few interesting uh, things that, well, companies like Ikea are, are actually doing useful things with it where you can drop in items from the IT, Ikea catalog into your home. And and mm -hmm. something like that, you know, again, it's for a lot of people, it's a bit gimmicky right now. Uh, but again, this is the sort of the early stages of it. And I think that as we start to play around with it, there's some there's some compelling ideas. Some of the really early AR stuff, uh, I remember seeing it was actually a Easter egg in, I want to say it was Yelp. And there's a way of getting to this screen where it brought up the the camera and you could turn it around and it would overlay where the restaurant was as you were looking. So if the if the restaurant was a kilometer down the road from where you were looking, it would show that that pin down the road from where you were. And if there was a another restaurant that happened to be closer to it, you would see the pin physically closer on the screen. And this was this is going back a number of years now. Um, I want to say this was might have even been during the iPhone 3GS era, maybe iPhone 4. And uh, again, it was pretty crude and and it was very limited in terms of what it, what it could do. But sometimes when you're you know when you're navigating a city and you don't know, for instance, where's the low, where's the closest metro station, right? And you can you can just hold up your phone and look around, and it will show you. It'll overlay interesting bits of information like that over your screen. So there's certainly some interesting ways of using this that I think we're starting to scratch the surface on. And I, again, I think it's going to be a few years before we see it, but I, I like to see this this technology pushed forward because it, I think this is 
this is something that we're going to rely on heavily in 10 years time with uh, with whatever mobile devices we're using and it's going to be important yeah. a very similar app from that era was uh, wikihood basically it would take uh, points of interest from wikipedia and, and overlay them on the, the camera for you and now i think that might go back all the way to iphone os one and then uh, of course an, another more useful one for, for me at least it was uh the star map oh yeah how could i forget that yeah. where you can overlay the the night sky yes there's certainly some some neat applications but those those particular examples depended more on uh sort of the, the gps and the gyro and the compass than the actual seeing what's going on analyzation of the physical space around you that that's going on with ar kit so they have recently introduced the ability to detect uh, vertical as well as horizontal surfaces. I think that'll have some really interesting yeah. applications once you you have this in a heads-up display. Because then all of a sudden you can mount screens anywhere you want, and they will remain fixed. And one of the other neat things that they, they introduced this year at WWDC was uh, a, a new file format for AR, the USDZ. And uh, what makes this interesting is is that you can very easily and quickly share point maps between devices over bluetooth or, or wi-fi over the internet what have you and so that two devices can basically see the the exact same mm-hmm. thing and um, yeah my understanding is that it's possible to share that information without being in the same space at the same time so uh, you know, I could I could leave something in virtual reality effectively for Tamara when she comes home, and uh, and be able to mm-hmm. see see other things there. So you could potentially leave, for instance, a a completely new layout of furniture from IKEA in the living room, and you know, say when you know when you get home, check out the the layout that I've you know that I've designed and see what you think. Uh, so there's yeah there's a there's a, a few interesting ideas with the, that file format that allow them to to share information back and forth. Yeah, it's really going to start to blur the line between uh, real reality and, and virtual reality. Yeah, and and I've never found virtual reality with a headset to be particularly compelling. I find um, the the lag between uh, the video on screen and the the real world is a little bit too high. And also, uh, my my left eye doesn't focus directly on a point um, together with my right eye, so I get some weird parallax because of that. And I find that VR tends to tends to really exacerbate that problem. But in the case of heads up displays, I find that those work significantly better because there I'm seeing the real world in real time without any lag, and the overlay that's going off of it, even if it's a little bit um, delayed. It, that delay is not enough to to cause me problems because most of what I'm seeing is in fact the real world and it's actually, you know, running in you know at full full frame rate, if you will. So I have a prototype of a head mounted display that's from Japan. It's more than a decade old now, but I, I was playing with it to try and make a digital loop. So I'm very interested to see once these headsets start becoming mainstream whether it'll be feasible for me to to make a, a digital loop that uh, will make it very easy to, to switch magnifications and, and pull up other information as I'm at the bench working on a, a piece. Well, I could see I could see that being compelling for people who are making things. There have been a few uh, proof of concept ideas with the, the current AR kit where 
you know, companies have made proprietary applications for technicians who are working on complex pieces of machinery and they can use their phone or their iPad, hold it up in front of the device and be able to see the internal contents of that particular machine and allow them to see where, you know, where a particular item might be and help them to be able to disassemble it and get access to things. So for instance, you can find out where the access panels are easily. I can imagine something like this where you have a, an overlay over your loop and that'll, that gives you instructions on how to properly disassemble a movement so that you disassemble it in the correct order and you reassemble it in the correct order. So there, there's certainly advantages of this, you know, for this kind of work. You know, obviously, you know, it sounds like you're, you're replacing, to some degree, you're replacing skilled workers when you're doing this. But one of the things that I found working in a shop is that the, the more you can do to simplify a process and make it less cerebral, you know, you, the, the greater your chances of not screwing it up. The, the, the second you have to think about stuff like uh, a lot of drawings, when you look at technical drawings for a machine shop, for instance, uh, there's a, an expectation that you can do the math and figure out some dimensions based on other things that are on the, on the sheet. And I, I really dislike that because it means that I have to be able to do the math and do it accurately while I'm operating machine that's trying to rip my arm off. And that's not always the the most conducive environment to even do basic math. So, you know, any anything that you can do that will help you with this, um, it, it would certainly, you know, certainly be worthwhile. Give it a few more years and you'll you'll have Jarvis giving you a <laughs> sideline commentary on, on why the, the elements you're currently mixing together are going to be make a horrible mess and, and not be a suitable replacement for Niello in any way. Hey, you know what? If if I can see something like that, then that's then that might help too, right? If I can get things like uh, temperature overlays and say, hey, this is, you know, this thing is is at at such and such a temperature. Uh, one of the talks at uh, at the Santa Fe Symposium that I loved was uh, Anne Cahoon's talk on uh, bench myths. Uh, this was a follow up to a talk she gave a few years ago, and this one was talking about annealing and soldering. One of the things she found in her study is that so many people are overheating their metals when they anneal and solder. She actually attached thermocouple probes to the pieces that she was soldering or annealing and was able to get exact numbers for what was happening at different different points. And, you know, the, that's the kind of thing, obviously, that you learn with experience. You learn what the color of something looks like, a color of a metal when it gets to temperature. But if you can if you can put an overlay over something and you can get a better sense of what's going on, then it might help you from, uh, you know, from overheating something and, and ruining a piece. Uh, you know, you, this morning I was working on on a prototype for my watch case and I read the wrong dimension on my drawing and I ended up turning down a part of the front bezel that I shouldn't have. And, you know, if I had had an overlay, let's say like a 3D overlay of what the finished part should look like on the, the piece that's spinning on the lathe, then I, it would have been very obvious to me that, I, you know, I was going to go too far and that the dimension that I had read was, was much too small for that area. So yeah, if I think there's some interesting possibilities for this. And again, it, it really obviously depends on some other technologies that are, that haven't, you know, haven't arrived yet, but I think this is the, 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 the leading wave of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and given the array of sensors that we're seeing integrated into things like the iPhone and mm. the Apple watch and, and all sorts of mobile devices, it's not outside of the realm of reason to have something like an infrared thermometer on 
these glasses of the future to, to give you exactly that sort of detail and something like an overlay has uh, like very easy to to see how that could be implemented even today with with today's technology um so it's yeah all very much within the the realm of reason and and probably not not too far off in the future i i suspect the thing that's limiting us at this point is battery technology uh you know, trying to have a, a battery on a pair of glasses that is actually comfortable and doesn't weigh too much. That's, I think that's one of our biggest limitations right now. So, the, you know, it may rely on waiting for the next, uh, the next big generation jump in battery technology, maybe graphene batteries or something like that. Uh, who knows? Uh, in this, I suspect just like the watch, you know, I think the watch came along at a time when they could finally fit enough battery power in it to keep it running and performing at a high enough rate. The glasses have an even smaller envelope of battery space. So I suspect that um, that's probably a big limiting factor in what they're doing. Given how long it's it's taking Apple to get air power out the door, I doubt we'll be seeing uh, wireless powered <laughs> devices anytime soon. No, and I'm not sure that I really want to be walking around with a pair of glasses on my head that are being wirelessly charged. I'm not, uh, not sure that that excites me a whole lot. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand. So last week I got my first uh, prototype case done in brass. I sent you a photo and video of that. And uh, mm-hmm. I had a bunch of changes that I wanted to make to it. So I've been, I remodeled that over, over the week and then started in on it this morning and started making, uh, making prototype number two. Nice. So, yeah. Yeah. It made way more sense when you sent the video. I imagine. Was, yeah. I didn't realize uh, it was two parts that you'd already set together. Well, it's actually, so there was actually the the bit that you so there was the bit that fell off the back uh the 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 case back itself but the rest of that case is actually three parts it's just that they have uh, such a good friction fit in between them that they don't come apart easily uh so that is actually three discrete pieces of of metal uh that will be soldered together and i've done that in this case because i want to be able to engine turn that middle band mm. And there's no good way to do that while the case is together. So it's easier to make that center band separately, engine turn it, then solder it to the front and back of the case. You know, that way it ends up being being easy for me to, to engine turn, do some other machining on it. Because, for instance, I also need to be able to uh, machine in the slots for where the lugs go, right? Because the, uh, the lugs have to fit in, in there. Mm-hmm. And then it's easy for me to then solder on the other two pieces afterwards and, and sort of keep it all together. So you'll get much cleaner interior angles for sure as well doing it that way. Oh, absolutely. The other advantage is that I get to cl- I get to save a lot of material on that inside that middle bezel. Right. Mm. That middle bezel is is only a millimeter wall thickness. It's not you know it's not very thick at all. Whereas if I wanted to sort of machine it all in one spot, I would have to go in there somehow and groove it to sort of 
make it, you know, lighten it up a little bit and, and um, free up a bit of material in there. This is just a little bit easier. What's the game plan for affixing the movements and, and the retaining ring within the case itself? That's a great question. I, I have a vague idea of what I'm going to do, and I have I, I still don't know. Um, I really wanted to have a an actual case in in my hand that was sort of together and solid, so that I could start sort of figuring it out. I know that I'm going to make a movement spacer for it that will sort of you know space it out to the outside of the case. They've already made provisions in the movement for three small mm-hmm. tabs to screw into place. So that that's how the movement. Uh, that movement spacer will be attached to the movement itself. Uh, I'm not sure yet how I'm going to keep that movement spacer sort of from shifting around in the, you know, the whole unit from shifting around in there. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to just sort of squeeze it in between the, you know, the dial and the uh, the case back. Uh, I might, you know, I don't know if that's something that people do at all. Um, the nice thing about it is that I can put the pressure on the, um, the movement spacer instead of the movement itself if I do that. So I, I don't know uh, is the is really the, the short answer to that question. I'm, I'm still not sure yet. Yeah, generally, you replicate the same sort of tabs into the, the size of the case, but given the, the thickness of the wall of the case, you may want to sort of take a page out of, of quartz movement, sort of generally accepted practices. And actually, I would do the inverse of what you'd find in most quartz watches. And you could do... A, a half rod, so half of a oh, I see a cylinder that you'd solder to the nine o'clock side of the case if your mm-hmm. crown's at three, and then just have a, a concave area taken out of the the casing ring mm-hmm. and that'll keep things from shifting rotationally. Okay, and then you would just need something to maintain tension down on the right. movement ring itself. So in most quartz watches, the retaining ring's made of plastic, so. Mm-hmm that tension is brought about by the plastic ring. In some older vintage watches, you'll get a a ring of metal that has been bent in a pattern so that it's almost spring-like and will hold tension down on on a movement or a movement ring. Yeah, there's actually uh, a specific type of spring washer that's like that. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. I was was also thinking maybe using, um, just using like a silicon gasket or something like that, like a like a little low ring that sits mm-hmm. uh, that sits on the top of them, the movement spacer, um, so that that's that sort of is gets compressed a little bit by the case back. Yeah, one of Jeje Lacoutte's Extreme Labs employed something kind of like that for hmm. superior shock resistance. <laughs> yeah, I'm not too concerned about it from a shock resistance point of view, but it would certainly hold it in place. Uh, the other thing that I haven't made a provision for is any kind of a seal. Uh, between the case back and the case itself uh, right now it's just straight metal on metal and i assume at some point i'm going to need to put a an o-ring in there to uh to mm-hmm. help resolve that uh that seal problem yeah definitely although i think i should have enough space in there i don't think that'll be too difficult i've got so is it just the the ring that your engine turning that's a millimeter thick or is this like the actual entire case wall that's just a millimeter thick no, no, it's just that ring. Uh, it's just okay. that part of the, just that ring in the center is is only a millimeter thick. The um, the front bezel and back bezel have a fair bit more meat to them than that. Uh, I don't remember exactly how thick they are, but there there's a fair bit of meat in there. It's not just a simple, you know, thin walled uh, uh, tube. Effectively, there's uh, there's a little mm-hmm. bit more there. 
All right. So what, have you decided on the pattern yet for the the straight line work that you're going to do around the edge? I think this one is just going to be straight coining. It's not mm -hmm. going to be engine turned around the diameter. I, I know there are a number of watches out there that have done similar things, although I find mm -hmm. they tend to do a mediocre job of it, um, probably because they're um, machining them in wax and then casting them. Uh, so you're not getting very much definition off of them. Uh, this I, I, I want to get something that's a little bit um, a little bit of a brighter finish and and a little bit nicer than uh, than what a lot of people have been doing. I may make the you know the the prototype and think that it looks horrible, so we'll we'll have to see what uh, what it actually looks like. And the Breguet cases I've handled with the coin edge are fairly sharp and well are defined. They? I've not had opportunity to handle a, a Peter Speak Marin piece right. with a, a similar style, so I don't don't quite know how that that holds up. Yeah, I guess we'll we'll see what um we'll see what it looks like. I I like the look of it. I like the idea of it at least. Um this is obviously the you know the case is is heavily inspired by a you know sort of a Breguet, a classic Breguet watch. So uh for at least this one, uh, we'll see we'll see what it looks like when and when I'm done and again I may knock out a prototype or two and say, "No, nope, I need to change that up. I want to do something different." And uh I, I do have a couple of other ideas for engine turning or uh, ornamentally turning that ring that uh, that will allow me to do some interesting things because there's you know there's fun things that I can do on the rose engine for instance and and stuff like that that'll that'll actually allow me to give it a bit of dimensionality as well as you know an interesting pattern on it yeah we'll see what happens yeah if you go a little deeper on the the protruding edges of the bezel on the case back you could get into doing some enamel work eventually too yeah there isn't uh, actually there's you know there's probably by the time I cut into it. So it doesn't look like there's a lot of a lot of uh, recess there right now, just because I haven't actually cut into it, you know, done any engine turning on it. Uh, I've given myself a little bit of extra material there just to, you know, to play with. But once it's actually been engine turned, uh, I expect there'll be enough enough of a, a gap there that I could do that. Uh, I'm not sure. Not sure if I would or not. The only problem that, that I would run into, or the big problem I would run into there. Let me just think. Actually, there's two big problems I'd run into there. One is the uh, the solder. Those solder joints would affect the color of the enamel at the edges. Mm -hmm. uh, the other problem would be the way the metals would shift and change in um, in expansion, like how they would expand and contract during the heating process. And because you've got the edges of that ring... Uh, sort of they're captured internally by the the bezels around the inside of the front and back bezel. Um, so those edges would expand and contract at different rates than the center of that bezel. And even though it's not very big, it's enough that you'd probably crack that. Hmm. It, uh, you'd have some interesting problems there. So that might be fun to play with. I'll have to uh, have to experiment. I might also experiment with uh, doing some yellow work in there as well, and see if I can do, uh, you know, do something interesting with uh, with a little bit of yellow. That'd be interesting. Can't say I've seen a a wristwatch case with any sort of yellow work in it ever. No, I don't think. Seen it on pocket watch cases that are you know, 150, 200 years old. Yeah, well, the the yellow. I mean, yellow tradition is sort of been out of style in the Western world since you know since. Uh, long before wristwatches became a thing and i don't think there i don't think there are a lot of watches being made in thailand that would be in this sort of 
you know, category in terms of jewelry making and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if, if there's, you know, there aren't any, um, you know, there aren't any watches out there with Nielo on it, wristwatches at least. Now, would you continue on with your architectural motifs that you've had in your pens and, and bring that over to the watch side of things with the Nielo? Yeah, I might do a little bit of that. We'll have to see what uh, part of it is figuring out what translates well into the smaller spaces because, of course, one of the biggest problems with going from the pens to the watches is that I'm working on a much smaller canvas here, uh, especially when you're talking about that that edge, that ring around the uh, the case itself, like that middle band. That's a much smaller area to work in than I'm, you know, that I'm used to. So trying to get patterns mm-hmm. that look good in there and also will fill with niello that's a bit of a you know a bit challenging so those might be very simple patterns um the dial itself i've got a few ideas for some interesting interesting things uh with the niello on the dial because there i've got a little bit more room to move and i can do mm-hmm. you know i can sort of do some more entertaining things with that so yeah we'll we'll see what we'll see what works out i haven't you know, I've been giving some thought to it, but I, I haven't had a chance to experiment yet, so I don't know what's going to work well and what won't. We'll have to see. 